Good morning. It is so good to see everybody today. I uh, hope and I pray that uh, you are excited to be in God's house, excited about what he's doing here um, in our our family. While you are opening your Bibles and getting to Acts 9, where we're going to be studying this morning, I want to remind you about our new parking setup. Uh, We're going to have this until late fall when our new auditorium opens. It's going to be this way for a while. And Uh, You've probably noticed, but our gravel lot, which is on the north side, is now closed. It's under construction, and we have replaced that with a a temporary gravel lot that's behind me. Uh, It's out here behind our our sprung, and we are asking that everyone, except for our seniors, except for our parents with small children, and most of all, except for our guests, we're asking for everyone else to park in this gravel lot that is behind us. And... uh, this is going to be especially important as we move toward Easter and more and more people are, are showing up here and we're going to have new people that don't really know their way around. And many of you are already parking there and I want to say thank you to you. Really appreciate that. Uh, if you aren't already parking there and you should be already parking there, I want to read you the theme verse <laughs> that our elders have chosen for this season of construction and disruption. It's 1 Corinthians 10.10 which says, And do not grumble. As some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. But uh, we would be grateful if you could park out back if you are able. So thank you very much for that. And let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 9. Now, Acts chapter 9 shows us uh, the story of the single most consequential life change in all of human history. It is the change when Saul becomes Paul. And I'm going to walk you through this very familiar story, and then I want to show you eight lessons that we can learn when God transforms a life. Eight lessons that Paul's conversion teaches us about all conversions. We begin in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I want to stop right there and say a couple of things. I want you to notice, first of all, how Jesus sees persecution against his followers. He asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus does not see the church as an it or as a building or as an organization, but as me. He has so united himself to his church. He says, we are in him and he is in us. And here's what we need to draw from this. We cannot, we cannot separate love for Jesus from commitment to his church. Jesus calls the church his bride, and you cannot love Jesus and hate his bride any more than you could tell me, Mike, you know, you're great, and we'd love to have you come over this afternoon for the Super Bowl party, but we don't really want you to bring that skank Dana with you, okay? <laughs> That's not going to work real right, okay? I, we're going to have a problem. Do you, 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 you feel me here, okay? Um, and you can also pray for me because I'm going to be in trouble, um, <laughs> Let's bring this back here. Now, I say this because 
in every church community, there are people who say they love Jesus, but they're only marginally involved in the church's life. And according to God's word, it's crystal clear, to claim to know Christ means that you connect your life in obedience to the life of a local church, and that means committing uh, to membership in that family and getting involved in ministry in that church family. And if it's not here, that's fine, but you need to be at a place where you can make that commitment and you can give your life and you can serve Jesus with other people. Now, I want to be clear. It's one thing if you're just new around here and you're just learning about who we are and you're praying through where God would have you to be. But if you are in a long-term pattern of just coming and attending and just coming and consuming and you're, you're unwilling to get connected and you're unwilling to commit your life, at some point that clearly becomes sin. Your unwillingness to commit and serve is diminishing and maybe even denigrating the value of the body of Christ. Now, some of you say, well, you know, the church embarrasses me. Well, the church embarrasses Jesus too. And you embarrass Jesus. But if he identifies with embarrassing, broken things like you and like me and like the church... Why would you think you're too good to identify with the church? You know, here's some signs that God is at work in, in your life. First of all, you get disgusted with the church. But then second, you get disgusted with yourself. And then third, you re-enter the church not as a Pharisee who condemns, but as a humble beggar who desperately needs grace. And you know that. Look at verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, later when Saul recounts this moment in Acts chapter 26, he reports something else that Jesus said right there, kind of in between those two phrases. Here's how he says it there in chapter 26. Jesus is speaking, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a sharp stick that was uh, jabbed into the back of an ox's leg or its hindquarters, and the ox would be forced to move ahead, and the ox wouldn't like that, and sometimes would kick against that goad. What goads were Saul kicking against? We're not exactly told, but there are some things that we can reasonably assume. First, the, the death of Stephen had to be bothering Saul. I, I think Saul never could get past the grace and the love and the confidence with which Stephen had died. Saul knew that he had helped put an innocent man to death. And then I think the same thing happened with the other Christians that Saul persecuted. The way they suffered, the way they died, it didn't make any sense to Paul. He wanted to know, why are these people so different? And then third, there was Jesus himself. I don't know if you've ever really looked at the chronology of things, but if you check it out in the study Bible maybe uh, and look at this, you will see that Saul is probably only five to ten years younger than Jesus. And there's a really good chance that during Jesus' ministry, Saul had been in Judea. There's a really good chance that he had heard of some of his teachings and his miracles, and maybe he'd even seen Jesus teach and seen Jesus perform miracles. He'd even seen Jesus himself 
And some scholars speculate, is it possible that Saul had been there at the cross? He was part of the, of the leadership. You know, uh, we don't really know, but it, it is clear that Saul could not get Jesus and his teachings and Jesus' love out of his mind. And then finally, there was Saul's own moral conscience. Saul claimed to be righteous, but inside his heart, he knew that he fell far short. Later on, he's going to talk in some places about his struggle with covetousness, among other things. And so there are many goads that are in his life that are wounding him and bothering him, and he was kicking against them. And the more they hurt, the more violently he kicked back. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And, you know, that's sometimes what happens in conversion. People around you encounter the same things, but they can't hear the voice of God. And if they hear the same sermons, they read the same books, they encounter the same questions, but it just sounds like noise to them. But it is in these things that you are hearing the voice of God. And some of you are experiencing this now. In verse 8, it says, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now put this together, and this is the picture that Luke wants us to see. Saul the strong, now kneeling before God. Saul, the one who thought he saw so clearly, now being led around by the hand because he is blind. Saul, the man who seized others, now seized and arrested by the Lord Jesus Christ, saw the hammer who broke other people's lives, now being broken on the anvil of Christ. And we know that Saul is soon going to change his name to Paul. That name Paul means small. Saul was this strong Jewish name, a proud name. It was the name of that tall, strong, mighty first king of Israel. And so Saul, the strong has now become Paul the small. That's what Luke wants us to see. In verse 10, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Have you ever done this? Have you ever informed God of some information that he seems to be missing? It's like, Lord, you know, I know you're up there and you know pretty much everything, but you kind of fly at the 30,000 foot level. There's some stuff happening down here in the ground I don't think you're quite aware of. So I want to tell you about those things. You know, we think we need to inform God. And so Ananias is like, uh, what? Uh, for a minute there, Jesus, I thought you were saying Saul of Tarsus. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> this would sort of be like today, Jesus coming to you, let's say 10 years ago, and saying to you, I want you to go down to Walmart. Now, you already know it's going to be a bad thing. You hear that. 
He says, because I've got a guy I want you to meet, and I want you to take him to church, and after that, I want you to take him home, and I want you to let him stay at your house. His name is Osama, Osama bin Laden, and he's going to be a tall guy. He's going to have this turban thing and a, like a big ZZ Top beard. It'd be impossible to miss him. You'll know exactly who he is. Go. That would be a problem, right? That's a bit, really bad idea, and that's what Ananias is trying to say. And so, verse 15 But the Lord said to Ananias, go, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So that's the story. What does Paul's conversion teach us about all conversions? Eight lessons, eight truths that I want you to see. Let's start with this one, number one. Salvation is always and only by God's amazing grace. We cannot miss this. It's grace. You see, instead of executing Saul on the Damascus road as he deserved, Jesus shows Saul unspeakable grace. And Paul's never going to get over this. Paul's going to write these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Can you hear the wonder in Paul's heart? Jesus saved me. Me. This is why Paul becomes the preeminent theologian of God's grace. He knew that he could never deserve God's love. This is why Paul is going to write those breathtaking words about grace and salvation in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, this is the good news. Salvation doesn't come through effort, our effort. It is always a gift of God's grace. It always has been. It always will be. And that means that we can rest and we can stop trying to be good enough on our own. And some of you here today, you are so weary, so tired. You have been working, and you have been running, and you have been chasing your whole life, and it's never been enough. And the gospel says it isn't enough. The gospel says you will never be enough. But the good news is Jesus is enough. See, Paul's conversion reminds us that salvation is always and only about God's grace. And so if you've been running and if you've been chasing, you've been trying to find something, the gospel says to you today, just stop. Just stop running. 
Just stop and just turn around. And when you turn around, you will find Jesus there. Because God pursues sinners. God has been chasing you, just like he pursued Saul. Even when you're not looking for him, just like Saul was not looking for God, he is after you. He is pursuing you. He wants to show you his grace. I mean, think about this. We, we see this in this text. Saul was not trying to get saved. He was not on a quest to find salvation. He was on a quest to persecute Christians. He wanted to arrest Christians. But God arrested him by God's sovereign grace. And God wants to do the same thing for you that hasn't happened in your life. Number two, all conversions involve surrender to Jesus Christ. They always do. Now, sometimes uh, people will come and try to use Paul's experience of conversions as the model for everyone. And we actually have a phrase for this. We call this what happened to Saul, the Damascus Road experience. But you need to understand how Paul experienced salvation was never intended to be the single model for everyone. Paul's surrender, however, is a model for everyone. Because everyone who comes to Jesus must surrender. Now, this surrender can happen in different ways. For some people, it does happen dramatically, like here in Acts 9. For other people, it will happen quietly. Uh, we, we actually see this in many places in the Bible. We see it actually in the book of Acts. There's one chapter in particular, chapter 16, that gives us two stories that show us this. Uh, you'll remember in Acts 16 the story of this dramatic conversion of the Philippian jailer. God sends in this earthquake. The building falls apart. He thinks he's going to die. And then he realizes that he is rescued. And he asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? Remember that story? But shortly before this has happened, earlier in the chapter, there's another story. And there's a woman named Lydia. And Lydia is converted more quietly. She simply heard the gospel, Luke tells us. And God opened her heart and she repented and she believed the gospel. Both of these people encountered Jesus. Both of these people were changed. In both cases, there was surrender. And that's what's going on here. Do not miss this. Saul is being humbled by the sovereign Lord, and so he can only humbly surrender to him. He says, who are you, Lord? Think of how, think of how Jesus is humbling Saul. First of all, he's humbling Saul by showing him the truth that the resurrection is true. I mean, if Jesus wasn't alive, he wouldn't be speaking to Saul, right? So he is alive. He has been resurrected. Jesus displays his power to Saul to prove that he is who he claimed to be. He knocks him off his horse, throws him to the ground, reminding him who's in charge, and it's not Saul. He humbles Saul by blinding him, forcing this tough guy to have to be led around by the hand. And then Jesus further humbles this wise religious leader, Saul, by sending him to Damascus to wait for someone to teach him and give him instruction. See, all these things are meant to show Saul he's not in charge. Jesus is Lord. And Saul can only surrender. And that's what has to happen to each one of us. All conversions involve surrender to Jesus Christ. Number three, conversion always requires confessing our blindness. Now, I want to let you know ahead of time, we're going to spend 
more time on this one. I just don't want you to get nervous, okay? So you can relax. We're going to be here a little bit longer. But I want you to see some things. Saul's blindness is a, a picture of all people separated from Christ. Saul's blindness shows us the spiritual darkness and the ignorance that he had been living in. It's a darkness that could only be lifted by God, revealing to him the glory of the truth about Christ. Paul's going to write these words to the Corinthians a few years later, 2 Corinthians 4. He writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Saul thought he was righteous, but he was actually walking in spiritual darkness until Jesus arrested him and saved him and transformed him. I'm going to point out to you two main forms of spiritual blindness. The first is irreligious blindness. This is when you believe your way is better than God or that you don't really need God. And so you pursue what the Bible calls sin. In our discovery classes, we we point out that sin's middle letter is I because that's what sin is about. Sin is you saying, I would rather be in charge because I know better than God. And maybe you've noticed this, but many times when you go down this road, at first it's great. Sin can be fun. And churches sometimes don't like to admit this. You know, a lot of times Christians will try to tell people, you know, sin is not fun. And sometimes people who don't know God are listening to them and thinking, well, you must not be doing it right if you think it's not fun. (laughs) It is fun for a while. But sooner or later, you wake up. Sooner or later, you look around and you realize that you have left behind you a string of broken relationships. You realize that really you're just unhappy. You can never meet the right guy. You don't like your job. You find yourself thinking, maybe I just need to move to a new city. Then it would be better. Life is always getting more complicated. I keep having one problem after another. And if this is happening to you, you need to realize God may be waking you up. God may be opening your eyes right now to your blindness. And I'm praying that For some of you, God is going to open your eyes, that he's going to show you he's not your enemy. See, some of you are right where Saul was. And I hope you see this, and I hope that you will stop kicking against those goads God is bringing into your life. Now, the second form of blindness is religious blindness. This is actually what Saul has. This is when you think that you can be good enough to earn God's approval, that if you will just try hard enough and keep the rules enough, then God, he's going to accept you. Now, why is this blindness? I want to kind of give you a short theology lesson to show you. You see, when when sin entered the human race, two things happened to us. The first is spiritual death. We died spiritually. Our, Our love for God died, and we replaced that love And and that worship with all kinds of things instead of God, in place of God. It's like John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. We're always manufacturing, creating, building new idols, new things that matter more to us than God. And the result of this was that God's laws to love and serve and 
glorify him, they, they became unnatural to us because of our spiritual deadness. And so we resist the things of God. And if we try to do them, and people who don't know God do try to do them, if we try that, then we chafe against them. Someone gave an illustration of this. It's like you're bending a, a metal bar. And if somehow you could bend that bar into the shape of a U, then one of two things is going to happen. At some point, you're going to lose your strength and stop holding that bar. And when that happens, that bar will snap back to its original shape. Or if you're able, you may put enough pressure on that bar and push it hard enough that it ends up snapping in the middle. It breaks. And this is what happens when when God's laws come to an unregenerate heart. You try to keep them. And it doesn't work. And you either go back to your heart's original shape whenever the pressure is gone. This is why people sometimes behave the right way around certain people. But then when they get alone or then when they get with other people, they go back to doing the things that they really want to do. The other side of this is you can become a religious hypocrite. You can be doing things on the outside that you don't really feel on the inside. And there are people, and I've seen this over the years as a pastor, who get to the place where it's like they snap spiritually. They will say, I'm just sick of all these rules. I'm going to do what I want. And this will help you understand some people you've known. This is why some people who have gone to church for years, and they seem to be righteous, godly people for years, and they seem to be serving God for years, all of a sudden they walk away and you look and you see they're living a totally different life and you find yourself thinking, what has happened? I'm so confused. How could this be? And it may be that they never knew God and now they've reverted to their original place. Their lives were never changed. See, if you try to change your heart through keeping the law like Paul did, it will never work because we're spiritually dead. The other thing that happened when we sinned, we see this in Genesis, is that uh, spiritual nakedness came into existence. We realized that we were naked. Now, of course, the story is Adam and Eve were naked before they sinned, but they had no shame about it. Uh, The early church father Athanasius said that, that they were not shamed because they were clothed in the love and acceptance of God. But sin stripped that away, that sense of acceptance. Sin brought shame and sin brought guilt and something is wrong and you always feel it. You feel naked and exposed. And so what do you do? I mean, what do you do if you're naked and you're normal? Well, you want to put clothes on, right? I mean, some people don't, but (laughs) if you're naked and you don't want to put clothes on, you're not normal. Can we agree on that, right? Now, spiritually speaking, the way we try to clothe ourselves is with good works. You see, we don't feel spiritually naked when we think we're good. And what that means, if we are trying to make ourselves feel spiritually good through our works, is that ultimately we are doing these good works for ourselves. We are doing these good works to feel good about ourselves. We are doing these good works to justify ourselves. We are not doing these good works for God. And when we have that kind of heart, what happens as we try to do these kind of good works is that they are hypocritical because they're just covering up the actual shape of what's inside our hearts. And then, secondly, they are ultimately selfish. We're doing them for pride, proving ourselves to other people how good we are. 
And this is why the reformer Martin Luther once said that we not only need to repent of our sin, we need to repent of our righteousness. He was saying we need to repent sometimes of the sinful reasons that we can use to do good things. And that's where Saul was. You see, good works that are done from a spiritually dead heart and as an attempt at self-justification always will lead to weariness. And because they're an attempt at self-justification, they will always also lead to this constant comparison. You're always looking around asking, how am I stacking up compared to other people? And comparison will always lead to either pride or despair. Pride when you're doing well, despair when you fail. And then this leads in this cycle to jealousy, and then jealousy can turn into hatred and into fear because other people threaten me, and then hatred and fear can turn into violence. Do you realize this is why some religious people like Paul or Saul are like the meanest people on the planet? Paul was really good, you see, but he was not very nice. And you know, when, when atheists sometimes talk about all the problems that religion causes, there's a sense in which we can say, you know, you're exactly right because religion does cause many problems. Religion leads to hypocrisy and leads to pride and leads to jealousy and leads to comparison, which leads to fear, and that, that can lead to violence. But then contrast this with the gospel, the gift of grace. The gospel, Jesus Christ dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sin, clothing us in his righteousness, giving us his resurrection life and the power of that life in, in, in to live a different way and to have a different heart. And Paul, when he experienced this, it changed everything about him. It changed his heart. He had been blind, but now he could see. And Paul's spiritual sight manifested itself in three things that were going to dominate the rest of his life. And these are things that will happen to you when the gospel changes you and your eyes are open. You can write this down. First, Paul got a sense of wonder instead of entitlement and pride. See, before this, Paul thought, well, of course God accepts me and approves of me. I am better than everyone else. Now, Paul is just filled with wonder. I can't believe God saved me. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. You know, a lot of us, we measure our spirituality about how well we're obeying God, how many of his rules and commands we are keeping. Paul would say the more we focus on and the more we marvel at God's grace, the more mature we are. Second, Paul had a genuine transparency instead of hypocrisy. And if you read his letters from this point on, you're going to see that Paul is constantly admitting his failings. He's going to say, I am the chief of sinners. And haven't you read that and thought, no, that can't be right. I mean, he's the apostle. Paul, how can this be true? That's what he says, though. He's going to say, the law tells me not to covet, but I covet. I find then a law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. He's honest about the state of his heart because Paul doesn't want people admiring his accomplishments. Paul wants people running to his Savior. And then third, there's a gracious generosity instead of hatred and pride. I mean, think about this. The man who wrote... 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, love is patient, love is kind. That man 
was a murderer. Paul was to say in Romans chapter 9 about his fellow Jewish people that he would die and he would go to hell if it would somehow bring salvation to them. I mean, just think about that. Before this, before he met Jesus, he would have bound his enemies in chains and hauled those enemies off to prison and told those enemies, you go to hell. But now he says he would go to hell gladly for them. Remember when I said a couple of weeks ago that those who believe the gospel and behold the gospel become like the gospel? This is what's happening in Paul. You know, I told you that Saul's new name, Paul, meant small. Well, Ananias, his name means the Lord is gracious. And Paul is going to spend the rest of his life talking about himself as a small man who was the recipient of the lavish grace of God. Number four, sincerity alone doesn't save. Saul truly believed he was righteous, yet he could not have been more wrong. All his good deeds, all his careful rule-keeping in the end amounted to nothing. And this is an important thing for us to see because we live in a day where the culture claims that it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Our culture thinks sincerity is a test of truth, but this is just wrong. Sincerity isn't a test of truth. And we see this here. Saul was sincerely wrong about Jesus and about the way of salvation like many people today. In Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, he's going to write about how his, his brother, brothers, the Jewish people, the Israelites, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. See, we, we need truth. Just because we're zealous for doing something, we're sincere about it, doesn't mean that that's going to save us. You have to put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. That is the truth that saves us. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven to men by which we must be saved. So sincerity alone, it does not save. Number five, when God converts, he always gives the Holy Spirit. We see Paul receiving the Holy Spirit in verse 17, and this is what happens to every Christian who truly repents and truly turns to Christ for salvation. Saul is going to go on later to write a lot about the Spirit's involvement in Christians' lives, and we're going to be talking more about this in the weeks ahead, and so we're not going to spend time here, but I just want you to see this is important to understand. Receiving the Holy Spirit is a central part of conversion, of coming to faith. Number six, and this is so important, your past isn't greater than God's grace. And I'm kind of thinking right now, there's somebody sitting here, and God brought you here just to hear this. Be reminded, Saul was a murderer. This is a truth that gets expressed several times in the New Testament. Right here in verse 1, Luke writes, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Later in Acts 22, when Paul is retelling the story of his conversion, he's going to say this about himself. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He said, I participated in his murder. I am a murderer. He also says in Acts 22, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing him into prison. Paul was a murderer. 
And his conversion scandalized Ananias. We're going to see this later. His conversion scandalized those first Christ followers, other people in the church. And it's kind of interesting in verse 15 as we read, Jesus has to say to Ananias, go. You ever say that to your kids? They don't want to do what you want them to do. And you just say, go. You just tell them they got to do it. He says, go. This man is my chosen instrument. You need to understand that real grace is always scandalous. Real grace is always going to trouble us. We're always going to wonder, how could that be? How could that person be forgiven? How could God wipe that away? John Newton, who we know is the author of the lyrics to Amazing Grace, in his earlier life was the captain of a slave trip, ship. He, he was a slave trader. And after he, he came to Christ... From time to time, he actually helped to lead the fight against the practice of slavery. But he would sometimes see slave ships. And he said, every time I saw a slave ship, it would fill me with horror because he said, that was me. I did that. And I did that freely. I chose to live that way. John Newton never got over the scandal of grace that he received from Jesus. That's why he wrote those words that we love. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Do you think John Newton was thinking about Acts 9 also when he wrote those words? See, the Bible shows us over and over and over again that God has determined to glorify himself in the saving of sinners. And it seems that the deeper the depravity, the greater God's glory in showing grace. That's why Paul will write in 1 Timothy 1.15 that I am the worst of sinners. And again, we read those words and we think, no, no, he's the apostle Paul. That can't be right. But Paul says it is. You know, there are two things about the gospel that are really difficult to believe. Number one, that you are so bad that Jesus had to die to save you. And then number two, that he was so gracious that he was glad to die to save you. I wonder, which of those two do you have more trouble believing? Do you have trouble believing that you were so bad he had to die? You know how you struggle with this? Hell offends you. If you find yourself thinking, hell really can't be that bad. It must not really be what it seems, the Bible seems to say that it is. If you find yourself thinking that, it's probably at root because you don't really think that you are that bad. It's probably because you don't really think that you deserve to go to hell. Now, the Bible says you are that bad. You are, and so am I. Do you struggle with this? Or maybe it's that you struggle with the fact that he was so loving that he was glad to die to save you. You see, conversion is kind of this dual realization, and Tim Keller was the one who said this, I think, the first time I ever heard it. It's the dual realization that I am worse than I ever dreamed, and God is more gracious than I'd ever hoped. And when you get that and put those two things together, you are saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
Jesus saved Saul, the murderer. Jesus saved John Newton, the slave trader. And I want to tell you this morning, it is no more of a miracle. It is no more of an amazing thing that he saved you and that he saved me. Salvation is by grace, always amazing grace. And one of the things that means is that your past isn't greater than God's grace. Number seven, your past doesn't prevent God from using you. Again, in Acts 9.15, Luke writes, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Think about this. Saul the murderer is chosen by God to stand before kings. God takes the greatest enemy of the church, the man with the blood of God's saints on his hands, and he puts him before kings with the salvation of the world on his lips. Never forget, this story tells us that the church's greatest missionary was once the church's greatest enemy. And it's one of the greatest mysteries of the gospel. You've seen it, haven't you? The greater the damage of sin It's like the greater your usefulness in redemption. It's like God just loves to take the greatest brokenness so that he can display his great power to save. Again, the greater the need for grace, the greater God's glory in bestowing it. And so to Paul, he says, get up, you murderer. I have a plan for you. You are going to save the lives of millions. I want to ask you this morning, what makes you feel disqualified? Is there some horrible, embarrassing mistake or failure in your past? Have you done something or have you lived in such a way that you find yourself thinking, there is no way that God can save me. And even if he could somehow save me, there is no way he could use me. I'm going to be disqualified. No way. Maybe you lived this day in the presence with this particular continual struggle with the flesh and you think God cannot use you. You think that you're too bad for God to use. Let me give you the good news, okay? You're worse. (laughs) But God's grace overrides that. God's grace overwhelms that. And the truth is those things that make you bad are the very things that God intends to forgive and cleanse and then use as instruments of his redemption. It's why he saved you from those circumstances he saved you from so that you would be able to better help those who are in the same circumstances. Sometimes the sin you struggle with and the pain you go through make you uniquely qualified to speak redemption to others in those same places. Number eight, the last. This is so good. When God saves you, he gives you a new family. Verse 17. This is so moving to me. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, He said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. These may be the very first words that Saul heard from the lips of a Christ follower. Ananias is calling 
a man brother, who had imprisoned and murdered his brothers and sisters in Christ. That's grace. And that grace that was available to Saul the murderer is available to you today. Again, some of you, you don't feel like you deserve to be part of a family like like. Jesus body the church. But the truth, again, is no one does. That's the beauty of it. We're all sinners and none of us deserve God's love, but God gives it anyway. And part of his love is he puts you in a family. Maybe you never had a family. Maybe you're not even sure what that might be like. Step into the grace of God and step into that family And let God show you what it's like. He wants to do it for you. Is God calling you to join his family today? Again, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. God is pursuing you. He is after you. And just like Saul, he wants to arrest you with his grace today. And his grace is a gift, and that gift is his son, Jesus. And all you have to do is stop running and turn around and receive it. Saul, I want to end by saying a couple of things. First, to those who are believers here today. And then I want to say something again to those that God is drawing to himself. If you're a believer today, I want to ask you, have you lost the wonder of God's grace? Maybe maybe we're like Ananias. You know, the church can often be like Ananias, unsure if God really is that gracious or powerful. Here's a question. Are there any Saul's in your life that you've quit praying for? Because you think, They're too difficult to save. What what if the problem with the Saul's in our community is not that God isn't willing to save them. It's just that God's people aren't believing that God is willing to save them and that he's there to save them. Maybe in your life you've lost the wonder of your own salvation. Do, Do you hear in Paul's story, your story? Did you come back to it again? And I hope you did because the fountain of the Christian life is this experience of grace. And I want you to see something. You never move on from this. You just keep coming back to it. That's why Martin Luther once said that progress in the Christian life is always to begin again. See, we don't grow spiritually by going beyond the gospel. We grow spiritually by going deeper into the gospel. You just keep coming back to Acts 9 and you keep saying, that's me. I'm beginning again. Progress is always to begin again. That's why We can sing those words in John Newton's song so that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise and no less desire to do it than when we've first begun. You know, Peter is going to write in one of his letters that the angels long to look into the things of the gospel the angels who see God's face every day, what they long to look into is Acts 9. They never lose the wonder of grace. And and some of you, you're telling me you're sort of bored with it and you want to go on to something deeper? (laughs) The angels who see God's face every day want to rehearse what happened to Paul because that is the sweetest sound of all to them. 
See, to progress is always to begin again. The measure of your spiritual growth is your amazement at God's grace. So never get over that. And then some of you, maybe God brought you here, and maybe for the first time in your life, some things are making sense to you. You're realizing God has been pursuing me. You're realizing I've been blind. Maybe God is opening your eyes today. Do you believe that Jesus can save you like he said he could and that he has a plan for you? I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. He is chasing you. He is pursuing you. And all you have to do is turn around. He's right there. All you have to do is receive the gift of grace that he offers to you. You can be saved. Your life can be transformed just like Saul's life was transformed. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, we want to thank you uh, for your amazing grace, this, this grace that saved and, and converted Saul into Paul, this grace, Father, that saves and converts us still today. Lord, may we, we never lose our amazement that you pursued us and you opened our eyes that in, in spite of our past, you still love us and you still want to use us. Lord, I want to pray for those who haven't met you yet, and I want to ask you, open their eyes today. Father, please grant them repentance and faith to trust you, to believe that you do love them, and that you sent your son Jesus to die for their sins. Father, may your light, Lord, and your love overwhelm them today, and may, may they even today give you their very lives for you to use for your glory. We ask all these things now in your precious son's name, the name of Jesus, and all God's people together say.